What's up, guys? My name is Tucker Bierman. I'm part owner of Refine Tile and Design, located in Wilmington, North Carolina. We are a multi-million dollar small business that is learning and growing as we go. We started the Refining Exchange podcast in order to learn from other small business owners and leaders that have paved the way before us. For our first episode, we are catching up with the owner of Alluring Glass, who happens to double as my father and role model. Jerry Bierman started Alluring Glass in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2007, just ahead of the recession. In this episode, Jerry shares insights for other entrepreneurs and owners looking to build a sustainable business. What's up, Jerry Bierman? We are hanging out and talking to you about small business and and some of the things that uh, a lot of the, gosh, a lot of the conversations that you and I are having constantly. We just want to kind of dive into that with you and, and kind of see where you guys are at currently. So start us off, um, like what is kind of your upbringing? And, and I know, personally, I know this, but um, tell the audience, like as a small business owner, what were some of the traits or skill sets that you had growing up that you're like, man, this is for me. And this is something that really interests me. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I'm 56. And, you know, if you're familiar with like the E-Myth, they talk about like technicians and managers and entrepreneurs. And most of our friends in the residential trades, Tucker, are technicians, right? They're, they're master craftsmen that um, own their own business. Many, uh, many of our friends that own their own business are like these really high-end master technicians, and they started their own business. Um, I'm one of the, I guess I'm an outlier, Tuck, in that I'm not a craftsman. Uh, I am on, I'm on the entrepreneurial spectrum, like I'm off the spectrum from a uh, entrepreneurial standpoint. And so specifically, one of the, one of the many stories that I share that um, helped me identify who I was and how like God uniquely made me and I've told you the story before, but I'll, just for your audience, just give them a quick pull the curtains back. Um, I was at a drive through Burger King with a buddy of mine who had just graduated from college. This is going back. I was probably in my mid-20s. And um, he was lamenting, complaining about not being able to find a good job. And I was I get really frustrated when I hear people complain about opportunities because I think they're everywhere. And again, as an entrepreneur, I'm looking for opportunities everywhere. And as this, as I tell the story, um, we were in drive-through at Burger King, and the car in front of me pulled up. And as it pulled up, there was a huge oil spot. And I turned to my friend, his name's Sean, and I said, "Hey, Sean, we could start a business cleaning oil spots." And so anyway, we pulled up to the drive-through, and uh, I gave him, you know, the money for my Whopper and Diet Coke because you always get a Diet Coke when you get a Whopper. And I said, "Hey, can I talk to the manager?" And they were like, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, it's fine. So the manager came and I said, hey, see those oil spots where the cars, you know, stop for a moment and they're dripping oil. Would you consider hiring somebody to clean those up? And the guy said, yeah. And so I went to Lowe's and got some emulsifier and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, that launched me into, um, you might or might not remember when myself and Mr. Barber had a business called the Solutions Group. And we did tile restoration, cleaning, sealing, um, and uh, sold janitorial supplies. And so that that was, you know, that's an example of like my entire life of like going through life, looking for opportunities to be in business for myself. So mm-hmm. hopefully that captures like the heartbeat of, of entrepreneurs that they just, you see opportunities everywhere. Yeah, that's really good. And so you kind of diving in on that, kind of the last piece, like as an entrepreneur, and again, I've got to see this firsthand. Yeah. A lot of times your first business, maybe not your second business, your third, you know, how many businesses did it take you 
to Alluring Glass uh, was started. Yeah. I mean, a bunch of businesses and a bunch of nonprofits. If you remember, um, remember the nonprofit we started when you were in middle school, I call it, it was called Impact Now, oh, where yeah. we were underprivileged kids. Um, yeah. And then uh, I had a sporting goods store uh, in college called Be a Sport. Um, and then I had illegal businesses like gambling and uh, I, some things in college where uh, anyway, so I did a, bu- a bunch of a bunch. I haven't of, heard those stories. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, tell you when we go to the Ohio State Michigan game. So, um, yeah, just a lot of lot of entrepreneurial uh, attempts. Yeah. And so I, I've had this business for 15 years. The Alluring Glass. So I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, for listeners that aren't familiar where you're originally from. uh, I'm sitting in Cincinnati, Ohio, in a building uh, where I launched a a company called Alluring Glass about 15 years ago. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. How did it get started? You know, what were like the the two to three years kind of leading into that, uh, into the business? Yeah. So if you remember, well, you don't remember, but it's your listeners. Some of the older guys remember 07, 08, 09, the market was crap. And um, I came across a couple guys that were laid off glazers is what they call them in the shower glass business and a lot of long stories. But basically I saved $50,000. I had 50 grand in the bank and I went to my wife, Kelly, and I said, Hey, I think I can, I think I can launch my own business. And I've got a, a year's worth of income, 50 grand that I think I can make it work. And um, a couple of things that were interesting. One is having uh, access to glazers, subcontractors that were master craftsmen. And then for myself is I was always trained to look for recurring opportunities. So I know in, in you know, high-end bathroom, kitchen, basement, uh, decks, additions, they say that the average affluent American upgrades every seven years. So I thought, man, if I could get into a niche of business where there's recurring business, um, and I, I wanted to serve the affluent because I knew that even in market conditions like 07, 08, 09, that the affluent Americans were still gonna spend money. So if I had products and services that serve the super affluent in a recurring nature, I would have a good business to launch. Yeah. And so was your question like the first th- uh, one to three years or something? Well, we'll get into that for sure. Okay. We'll get into that next. But, you know, as we set this up, the listeners is like, what were some of the fears? What were some of the anxieties? What were some of the, hey, like, if this doesn't work out or what what do I need to do to make this happen? Like going into this is, you know, leading up to you launching it. That was like, a, you remember being a big anxiety for you. Yeah. Well, you know, for my wife, I was a poser, right? So I was posing like, Hey, I got this. I'm confident. You know, I've got a runway of 50 grand. Um, and I believe I can make it work. Kelly wasn't interested in the, you know, the recurring nature of the business and being best in class product and service. But, you know, for her, I was kind of posing that I, I think I can do this. Uh, yeah. there was a tremendous amount of anxiety. I saw, saw it your grandfather, who's one of the smartest financial people I know. And I was asking him a lot of questions, a lot of probing questions, you know, a lot of what ifs, a lot of like, how do I build a foundation? There was, uh, I'm starting to get anxious just thinking about it. There was a tremendous amount of anxiety because the consequences were so great, right? I had four kids and a wife and a house. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was scary. That's good. And then, yeah, leading into the the inception to that first three years, what did, and you can feel free to share this, these numbers, if you want to, yeah. what, were, what were the sales like? Were they, you know, obviously it was 08, 09. So 
Um, you know, the viewers or listeners probably know what that looked like, kind of. But if I remember correctly, you talked about actually having some success within those first couple of years. So what that looked like? What were some of the, the struggles and successes within those the first yeah. couple of years? So fortunately, again, we're dealing with Americans, especially affluent Americans, that they're used to upgrading. And one of the uh, one of the first things I did was I started linking up with tile installers. What I realized was shower glass always follows new tile installation. So if I could build a database of everybody that sold tile in Cincinnati and everybody that installed tile in Cincinnati, then I would have a market, right? So the first thing is what's the market like? So I was like, okay, frick, that's a good market because everybody that installs tile, everybody that sells tile, and then I was looking for differentiators, like competitive advantages, like, you know, you and I have learned over the years, the three legs of a stool. In 07, 08, 09, the three legs uh, of the stool are different than they are in 2022 as we tape this recording. In 07, 08, 09, you could be, you, you could use the best material available, be the most expensive. You could be the, uh, the fastest or so you could use best material, you could be the fastest, uh, or you could be the cheapest. Best material didn't lend itself for being the cheapest. So when I started the business, I was trying to be the fastest because the tile guys were like trying to cash out of their job. The contractors were trying to get their final check. And so if I could be the fastest guy to the house to install the custom shower glass, and I could be the cheapest, those were the two legs that I was working on in 07, 08, 09. I wanted to get to your house as quickly as possible, and I wanted it to be custom shower glass, and I wanted to be as economical as possible. So I wasn't at, in 07, 08, 09, I was not using the best material on the market. Mm-hmm. And I did that for probably the first, gosh, three to five years. And then as the market started to uh, get stronger, I started to massage and pivot and I pivoted, and for the past 10 years, we've used the best material on the market, um, best, best glass, tightest deductions, you know, the, the smallest tolerances, if you will, uh, best material, and stuck with speed to be the quickest to respond and react. And so I, I changed as the market changed. Um, I replaced cheap for best material available. And I've done that for the past, we've been in that, in that lane for the past five years. That's really good. And yeah, speaking to that is like, gosh, sometimes, yeah, you have to start a business with certain core values stick with you, but there's certain things that you have to shift along the way. And and we'll kind of talk about that here in a bit, talking about when we get to scaling, but staying in this kind of inception to first three years time period, like what were the hurdles? If you had, if you can remember back again, I don't know if you thought about that, but like, Hey, you know, what's realistic for us as a company and what were some of those really challenging moments for you guys in those first couple of years? Yeah. It, you know, first thing it was working seven days a week, you know, so I'm a person of faith. And so this, you know, the idea of a Sabbath and like, you know, working six days and taking off the seven is that sounds great spiritually, but I was in a season where I, I don't know if you guys remember, but I had a lot of conversations with my four kids and I had conversations with my wife and I said, I'm going to get, I'm giving it everything I've got. And so then I, I'd get up earlier, work on Saturdays and Sundays, try to work before you guys got up. Um, it was just like, it was, it was rough, man. It was a grind. It was hand-to-hand combat. It was, it was super difficult. And one of the, one of my friends told me early on, it might've been in the first year or two years, 
that he said, get $100,000 in the bank as quickly as possible. Get $100,000 in the bank. And, it, you know, again, th this idea of building cash was tough. So it was like balancing the launch of a business, trying to build a brand, trying to build a brand reputation, trying to make money, and then trying to save money. It's a juggling act. It's it's really the first few years. It was brutal. So funny, Tucker, because so many times you talk to people and they're like, oh, I want to own my own business. You know, you actually probably don't. You, yeah. you, you probably don't. And when I say own my own business, I mean bootstrap, like you self-finance, like launch it yourself. Go get right. As Seth Godin says, get one customer, delight them and do it again. Right. Yeah. That that's that's the launch of a business. Get a customer, delight them and do it again. And it's hard, man. It is really, really hard. That's really good. So you guys, obviously you had success. You're here 15 years later, whatever that uh, number is. And, and, you know, those first three, three to four years are hard, let alone being in a recession, I can only imagine. And, and like you're discussing is there's, there's a lot of stuff that you learned. So as yep. you, you know, you, you kind of built your floor per se of, of revenue, you know, over the first probably three to five years, but Hey, this is kind of, this is kind of where we're at, what, what I believe we can kind of maintain. So as you hit those sticking points, talk about that. And once you hit X and again, share the, however you want to lay this out for the people listening. Once I hit this, you know, our sticking point, what were some of the challenges kind of breaking through that and trying to scale a business? Yeah. Yeah. One of the first st sticking points is sustainability. And you think about like, can I get sick? Can I go on vacation? Like, you know, I don't know. Again, you probably don't remember, but I'd go on vacation and I'd take my phone with me and yeah. I would because I was the project manager, I onboarded a hundred for the first million dollars in revenue. hundred percent of those jobs went through me. So I, I, I set them up, I onboarded them and I invoiced them. I ran their entire projects for the first million dollars. And so for the first million dollars, it was everything through me. And the challenge with that is then you can't get sick. You can't take a vacation. You what I've learned, Tucker's, that's not a sustainable model. And so yeah. when you see sticking points, it's like, okay, I actually, for me to for me to have a sustainable, let me let me actually re-engineer this. I've got a good friend just retired at 72 years old, no employees, and did it his way as was that guy, Neil Sinatra saying, I did it my way. So what he did is he priced, he he could have been a CPA so strong financially, but he bid the job as well. And he maximized his profitability and he audited 100% of his jobs that he knew if he made more money, he wanted to know why. If he made less money, he wanted to know why. Had a business model that maximized his profitability, but it was not sustainable. Meaning when he goes on vacation, he made no money, right? Yeah. When he, he retired, he shut the doors, he makes no money. And so it depends on what you want. Some of your listeners might say, I want a business that's sustainable. Well, then you need to build a different structure, right? So I wanted to build something that was sustainable. I wanted to build something that when I went on vacation, it still produced the same amount of revenue as if I was still there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not talking about scaling your business. Yeah. I'm talking about I'm talking about a sustainable business that operates if you're not there. And we'll get into scaling in a second. They're two totally different uh, issues and the techniques and the resources that you need are totally different. Kind of honing in on that. What did you focus on first? Like, can you take yourself back to that? Were you focused on was 
you know, sustainability or were you focused on scalability at that point in driving revenue? Because for me, I'll just say this is, and this is my, maybe my naive brain as a young entrepreneur owner is I think about scalability more than I think about sustainability in the sense that I'm willing to take on more to drive revenue. I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm just saying, is that something that you've struggled with or did you actually seek sustainability first? Yeah. Okay. So first, let me give you a pre-qualifier. Uh, repeat after me. Are you ready, Tucker? I'm ready. Jerry, you are wrong. Say that. Jerry, you are wrong. All right. So now that all your listeners know that I'm wrong, I'm going to tell you exactly what I did and what I wish I would have done. Right. Yeah. So sometimes when I'm listening to people, I'm like, you're full of crap. I'm not going to do that or you didn't do it or whatever. And so I'm just going to try to save your listeners time to say, hey, look, I'm just going to tell you my truth. This yeah. is this is what really happened to me is I made a huge mistake trying to build something that's, that's sustainable and scaling at the same time. I try. So you asked me what I did. I wish I wouldn't have done what I did. I tried to build sustainability and scale the business at the exact same time. I wish I wouldn't have done that. And I'm coaching a lot of my buddies that own small businesses. What I'm saying to them is, hey, here's the mistake I made. And I would encourage you not to make the same mistake. Make it sustainable first. Lock mm -hmm. that down so you can go on vacation and you can get sick without losing any revenue. Do that first. After you do that, then start to intentionally scale. And when I, say, when I say intentionally scale, many of us have businesses, like my revenue's up 30%, but it's not because of our, we haven't pulled a lever for sales. It's because the market conditions are artificially strong. I don't have a lever of sales that increased our revenue by 30%. It's because the market's strong. And sometimes that creates the illusion that Jerry's like some kind of marketing genius or that Alluring Glass is super intentional about our marketing and our, our top funnel, or our lead generation. And that's not true. So the, the first piece of that is you got you to gotta audit yourself. And you got to look at it from a truth standpoint. Is your revenue up because of the market conditions or is, the, is your revenue up because your team's kicking ass and because you've got a sales lever, right? So you got to audit that. So you asked me what I did. I tried to do both. If I had to do it again, and as I'm coaching my buddies, I'm like, don't do it. Make it sustainable first. And here's Here's some of the things that I did that I wish I wouldn't have done. I was just, I don't know if you can see my hand. I was just like doing a pulse. Like if somebody had a pulse, I was like, I'll take you, right? Anybody that wanted to work in the business, I'd be like, hey, if you're up to room temperature, you got a pulse, I'll take you. Yeah. And so I just hired bodies and I wasn't hiring experts. I was hiring bodies. And so as soon as you just bring bodies into your business, for either sustainability or scaling, they can't execute at the level that your master craftsmen have. So there's this balance between like hiring the right person with the right skill set that's pretty close to becoming a master craftsman or hiring somebody that's super hungry to be a master craftsman, not hiring somebody that just needs a job. If I had to do it over again, I would have been much more selective. I'm hiring a master craftsman or somebody that's dang close, or I'm going to hire somebody that's super hungry to be a master craftsman. So I would have hired fewer people because I would, 
if I did it over again, I wouldn't be trying to scale. I would be trying to sustain. And for sustainability, I need less people than I do to scale. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's really good. So you navigated that for a handful of years, three to five. And, and so as you kind of worked through that, have you figured out how to scale or are you still working on the sustainability part? Yeah, that's a great question. So sustainability first, right? Because we got to be able to, as a business owner, I wanted, I chose to work on the business, not in it. So yeah. my ambition was to build the enterprise, right? Sustainable and then scale it to the point where I could work on it instead of in it, right? And so that took me, you know, again, a decade because I did so many things wrong. Once I got to the point where I could work on it instead of in it, then I started building the infrastructure to be in, uh, obviously maintain the sustainability and then to intentionally scale. So as you and I are recording this in September uh, of 2022, the infrastructure is being, uh, enhanced right now for scale. And I'm going to tell you about that after I take a drink of water. There you go. Yeah. Take a breath. No, that's really good. And I'll just, you know, for me personally to hear some of that is, is awesome because yeah, I think for young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in general that are, you know, kind of staking their claim, if it's their second, third, seventh, ninth, 25th business, it's like, Hey, I'm getting some traction here. This is something that I need to like go all in for and really take advantage of. Maybe it's the marketplace or maybe it's the maybe it's the product that you're providing. And so I, I relate to that big time. And hopefully, obviously, I can learn from this conversation because I think, you know, I'm trying to, to do the sustainable part. And I'm trying to do the scaling part maybe together. So that's really yeah. good. Well, and I think, you know, when I, again, talking to my friends that own small businesses, um, I tell them that probably probably one percent or less of our friends that launched their own business ever built it or will ever build it to the point where they could work 100 percent on it versus in it. And many of my friends don't even want that. One of the things that you should do if you've got this illusion of, of building an enterprise that you can work on it instead of in it is look at the day in the life of a, of a CEO or an owner of a trades business. Like, what do they spend their time doing, you know, five days a week, if you will, five days a week? What is something that if you're just working on it instead of in it, what do you do every day? And when you're talking to craftsmen, a lot of times they're like, that sounds great. You're coaching all day. You're strategizing all day. You're coaching and strategizing. And so some guys are like, that would be great. But do you have a skill set to coach and strategize? Like, is that, have you been tra trained to coach people and strategize? No, you've been, you've been coached to be a master craftsman, which means you need to learn a whole nother tool set, right? There's a whole nother tool belt for working on it instead of in it. And you might not want to do that. And there's no shame in it. Why allow others to, right? whatever stress or pressure is on you to build something that you're really not even going to be happy building. So I think yeah. the first thing is you audit yourself and say, Hey, look, do I really just want to be a sole proprietor, maximize my profitability, do it my way, you know, retire when you can and realize when you go on vacation, you're not going to make any money. There's nothing wrong with that. Or B, do I want to build a sustainable business that has an infrastructure that enables me to go on vacation, get sick, and the business can carry on without me for a period of time, right? Sustainable means, right, over a period of time. And then the third thing is, do you want to actually build something that scales? And so, like, I'm in a phase right now where your brother, 
and uh, David Booz, for instance. I've got a couple of leaders in our company that are like, hey, let's grow this thing. Let's scale this thing. And I'm like, all right, to scale it. And again, I've gotten a lot of coaching from my friends. We need some different, as I talked about, strategies, and we need some different intentionalities. And so um, to scale a business means that you're going to have infrastructure that's going to change, adapt, grow. Everybody knows that you have processes, even the sole proprietor, like this is the way he does it. He doesn't have to document it because it's just him. He's got it between his ears, read it. He's got all this IP, right? All the intellectual property between his ears. For sustainability, you got to take your IP and get it out on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. You got to take all your IP, get it out on a piece of paper and say, this is the way we do it at Refine. This is the way we do it here, right? To scale it, to scale it, and reproduce those systems and processes in other people. The piece that I missed for a lot of years is the uh, measurement of accountability to the system and process. Like one of the ingredients for scaling is you've got systems and processes, great. What's the accountability to those? Like what's the what's your, your measurements so we've got six departments at Alluring Glass. What's the, the measurements in all six departments that we can trust but verify er, without micromanaging people, right? Right. How do we trust but verify everybody's dying to the systems and the processes? Because if your staff, if you don't have accountabilities, if you do not have accountabilities, if you do not have accountabilities to the systems and processes and you scale, it's going to be a train wreck. The quality, the, the, the execution is going to drop, 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 drop before you won't even recognize the business anymore. And so scaling your business where you're not compromising the quality that the customer was used to experiencing when you're a sole proprietor or the second step when you started to create a sustainable business. And they're like, I'm going to hire Refine because they knock it out of the park almost every time. Right. They're not perfect. They're humans, but they knock it out of the park almost every time. When you start to scale, what systems and processes are you going to put in place to make sure that if you doubled your installation crews, who's going to trust but verify their fall in the processes? And if you scale without people dying to the processes, the business is going to die. You're not going to make it. Mm -hmm. Another lever that you need is recruiting and retention. What's your marketing strategy to get new clients? What's your marketing strategy? What's that lever to go get more project managers, more sales guys, more installation, more people in accounting and finance, right? Yeah. More ops guys. What's that lever? What are you going to tap into? Because to scale, you need levers to pull that create predictable amounts of talent, right? So that's another ingredient you need. And then for just the, the client acquisition piece, do you have, if you're B2C or B2B, where's, where's that lever? Do you have a lever that you're going to pull that when you need to increase your revenue, right? We're arguably in a recession now, hasn't really affected our market as far as the volume's concerned, but some say it will. And so if it does, what lever are you going to pull to keep all your guys on the payroll? So let's talk about this though, too, because, and I think, you know, you're answering this question already, but I'm going to ask it just to kind of bring this together is 
you didn't necessarily figure out how to do all of these things yourself, but you found and hired and onboarded some people to do those things. You're creating sustainability by bringing on talented people, but then you're also giving yourself um, the opportunity to obviously scale like we're talking about or just be sustainable by having those people that are, you know, if he can focus on these couple things and, and he can focus on and she could focus on these couple things, you know, building out that leadership team per se. Yeah. Well, you and I love college football, right? Go Bucks. So we're, you know, you've got, you've got a head coach. You look at Ryan Day's, uh, all his coaching staff, all his recruiting guys, your buddy, Chad, who recruits for Notre Dame, right? So you got guys that are going out town acquisition, and then you've got 11 players on, right? on offense, defense, and special teams. You've got C.J. Stroud as a quarterback has a totally different skill set than, you know, Cody Simon or, you know, Mike Hall. They're totally yeah. different skill sets. And so a lot of times looking at sports is the easiest way for you to like consider how do I build something sustainable and then how do I build something scalable? And so you got to have experts in areas that you're you're not. One of my greatest assets in the residential trades business is that I'm incompetent at the craft. Yeah. And so because I'm incompetent at the craft, then I never get sucked into, hey, can you go over to the Smith job and get that glass installed? Like I never get sucked into um, physically doing the craft. So I think my friends that have been master craftsmen, I think it's been a lot harder for them. The best person to fix that is him or her. And so to build a team where they're, you know, either better at it or Paul Bauscher would say, if you can get them like to 80%, yeah, they could do it as good as you by close to 80%. And he said, most of you are actually uh, wrongfully assessing them. They're actually probably a lot better than 80%. You're just very critical. And so that's a, and again, that's part of the tough balancing act, Tuck. Really is good. You got to build a team, man. That's really good. Well, this is awesome. Again, kind of getting us closer to the closing part of this is what are you guys learning right now? What are, how, what are you guys navigating some yeah. things that you're like, man, I've been thinking about figuring this out for a long time that you yeah. feel like you guys are on the cusp of. Yeah. Yeah. So what I preach to Dakota and, and Booz as our senior leaders is retention and execution. The two, like right now, 2022, September, 2022, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time recruiting guys and training guys, and we want to keep them. We are talking to our guys about, which is totally different than most of them are used to hearing is, we want you to consider spending the rest of your life, you know, this would be a career move for you to stay on our team. So the language for our guys is we, we would like to retain you for the rest of your career. So retention is a huge issue and then execution. So um, that's what I commissioned. Uh, everything that Dakota and David, almost everything they do is built around. It's got to be, have some influence on retaining our guys and executing at a, you know, at a best in class level, whatever that means to, to you and your craft. But those are, those are critical pieces for me to scale. That's awesome. Well, thank you. We appreciate you. Go Bucks, like you said, and um and thanks for taking the time. Gosh, there's so, so many good pieces there that I can already kind of think of. I'll probably have to listen to this again to kind of let some of this savor. And, and gosh, we could probably dissect some of these things too and make it its own its own episode. But thanks yeah. for sharing that. And, and uh, hopefully we can all learn a little bit more from that. So you bet. Love you. 
Thanks for listening to the episode. If you guys enjoyed, please give us a like or share the Refining Exchange with someone that could find this valuable. We're looking forward to learning and growing with you guys on the next one.